20 years, huh? It's hard to, 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 to believe that it's been 20 years. For me, <laughs> some of you will say I'm really young now. I don't feel that way, but that was a lifetime ago for me. I was 19 years old whenever it happened. I was a sophomore in college. I had just left my 7 o'clock in the morning class because Ozark's awesome, right? And I walked to a dorm because I had an hour before chapel. And I walked into the lobby of the dorm and the first, pl- the, the first tower had been hit. Sat there for a couple of seconds just trying to figure out what in the world was going on. You guys remember, they at first thought it was just this little commuter plane and and looking at the hole thinking man that's a seems like a really big hole only to moments later have the second tower be hit and and president bush he 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 put it this way he said the first one was an accident the second one was an attack and the third was a declaration of war And I don't know about you, but that is like a defining moment in my life to where I live in a world of pre-9-11 and post-9-11. It's hard to explain. I never went to a sporting event before 9-11 wondering if I would be safe. I remember going to game one of the 2015 World Series with my dad in Kansas City. Go Royals. And walking out and just thinking, something doesn't feel right. And I've had that feeling time and time and time again. It was as if whenever before 9-11, I felt like I was protected and everything was okay. After 9-11, it felt like that sense of security was, was damaged. But I just want us to take a moment and, 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 and remember the 3,000 people that were lost that day. I want us to, 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 to remember, because I'm guessing that there are probably people in this room, or at the very least family members of you in this room, who ended up enlisting in the service because of what happened that day. It is a day that has truly marked our history. I I remember as I was watching the attacks take place and I was driving home, I got a phone call from my parents who were in Las Vegas for the week. They ended up buying a car in Vegas just so they could get home because there was no other means of transportation. And I remember them telling me, Andy, you need to go get some gas. You need to fill your car up with gas because the big fear was that there was going to be a big gas shortage. I remember having thoughts of after hearing about what happened in the 70s with the Vietnam War, and you know, I'm 19 years old. Is there going to be a draft? Am I going to have to enlist in the service? And it was just a day that I will never, ever forget. How can things that happened last week seem like a lifetime ago, but something that happened 20 years ago seemed like it was yesterday? That's what it is. But I'll never forget the unity that we had as a country. 
the unity that we felt in the church as the church buildings were full after this, this postmodern movement was moving in and churches were emptying. After this event, once again, the churches were, were full. And I don't know if the church did everything right during that time. I was an intern at a church, but I mean, they probably kept me out of the majority of the tough conversations. But I do know I would love to see that unity again. And I do know that the church is the light of the world. And if anybody can be that unifying factor, Friends, I don't care who's in office. I don't care what's happening in Washington, D.C. That's not going to be the answer. But I believe that the church of Jesus Christ can't be. So if you would, let's take a moment of silence to just remember those who were lost. Jesus, the heartbreak that comes along with what happened yesterday. is impossible to dismiss. And that's not just heartbreak here in America, but God, that is heartbreak around the world as this, this war was started that day that has taken so many innocent lives. Jesus, I, I think of the words that I read yesterday. That Andy Stanley wrote whenever he said, Once upon a time, terror was the dominant tool used by those in power to maintain their power. But then a rabbi from Nazareth entered, introduced a different paradigm for power. He was the king who came to reverse the order of things. He would lay down his life for his subjects instead of requiring that they lay down their lives for him. He came not to be served, but to serve, and in the end, to give his life as a ransom for many. The kingdom values Jesus of Nazareth introduced to the world shaped Western civilization. And 20 years ago, we were reminded that our struggle is in fact not simply against flesh and blood. It is not merely geopolitical. It's not nation against nation. It can't be reduced to conflicting worldviews. Our assumptions regarding freedom and the dignity of all humans are inextricably linked to a man who claimed to be God and validated that claim by predicting his own death and resurrection and then pulling them off. As difficult as it will be for some to acknowledge the battle lines drawn are, are drawn in the realm of theology, if God is love then we should love one another. If God so loved that he gave, then we should freely give to one another. If God sent his son to carry our burdens, then we should carry one another's burdens as well. If the truth of Jesus sets us free, we should create a culture characterized by freedom. Where the law of Christ is recognized and embraced, people prosper. Where it is ignored or rejected, people suffer. 
So to my fellow Jesus followers, it is important, it is more important than ever that we let our light shine in such a way that people see our good works and recognize our devotion to our Father in heaven and to his Son who modeled the way. And Jesus, may we be that people. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Daniel mentioned today, we are beginning a new series on the book of John, and, and I don't know what kind of tension this will bring up in you, but this is our last sermon series before a Christmas series in December. So we're getting a little bit later into the year, and we're going to spend quite a bit of time here looking at, at John's gospel. I, I, I love John's gospel. John's gospel is, is honestly, and I don't know if this is okay or not, you know, if it's right to have a favorite, but John's gospel is my favorite gospel. I think a big reason for that is because John's gospel is different than the other gospels. The gospels Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they were all known as the synoptic gospels. They were all written kind of close together, and they tell a lot of the same stories and give a lot of the same pictures of Jesus. But John's gospel was written a little bit later on. And John gives us a, a, a different picture of Jesus. He shows us a different side of Jesus. He tells different stories than the synoptic gospels tell us. John is the only gospel writer. Sure, we have Mark who was you know, mentored by Peter, and a lot of scholars believe that Mark is really just giving us Peter's story, but it's still coming kind of secondhand. John is the only one of the inner three of Jesus' disciples that we get to see exactly what he thought you know, firsthand in, in, in his gospel. And that's just such a fascinating, fascinating thing to me. Anytime people ask me, you know, where should I start in reading the Bible? And if you're here today and you're saying, where should I start with reading the Bible? My answer is always the book of John. But if you're asking that question today, can I invite you to show up for like the next 12 or 13 weeks as we go through this series and as we look at this gospel? Because I, I hope I hope that we end up seeing Jesus for who he really is, and we come to know him more over the course of the next couple of months. But one thing that I, I really love doing is I love to introduce people, like especially in this kind of a setting, whenever we have a guest speaker or something, I love introducing people. I love, I, I love the whole process of coming up with an introduction. I love the process of, of digging into their past, of, of thinking back on like the personal relationship that I have with the person. I love reading the, the bios that they have in various places, reading about their, their, their past accomplishments, their awards. I, I love trying to find something super obscure about them to like mention last. So whenever they get on stage, maybe they're just shaking their hand like, Andy, you're an idiot. Like, I love that entire, that, that, that entire process. But something I've learned over the years is the deeper the relationship that I have with the person, the more difficult it is for me to introduce them. 
A few months ago, I was driving with a friend, and, and we were leaving Branson, Missouri, and just as a little bit of a backstory, my dad has been a, a performer in Branson for like 20 years now, and so he, he's been in that area doing, doing stuff, and so I'm sure I talked a lot about my dad and just, you know, all that stuff over, over the weekend, and, and so as, as we're leaving Branson, my, my friend, he looks at me, and he said, hey, I hear you talk about your dad a lot. Why don't you tell me about your mom? And I love my dad. I have a great relationship with my dad. I am so proud of my dad. I am so proud to be my dad's son. But whenever he asked me that question, it was as if my tongue swelled in my mouth and I just couldn't get any words out. Why don't you tell me about your mom? And so after stuttering and stammering for a few moments, I finally came up with some words. And I said, well, she's a, she, she's a fighter. She's a protector. She's fiercely loyal. And she has probably shown more grace throughout her life than anybody I've ever met. But do you know who the hardest person in the world is for me to introduce? It's my wife. It's my wife. I mean, how in the world am I supposed to explain who my wife is, what she has meant to me, what all she has brought to my life over the course of the last 18 years or so? And so anytime that I've been asked to introduce my wife, my words, they just feel so incomplete. I end up saying things like, well, I mean, she's, she's so humble. She's so kind. She loves her family to a point that I literally cannot even begin to put into words. She's selfless. She's a servant. She's humble. She's beautiful. I love her eyes. I love to make her laugh. Ladies and gentlemen, Heather Turner, right? I mean, it just, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. It doesn't really convey anything because the things that I know about her, the things about her that mean the most to me are not the kind of things that you're going to find under awards and accomplishments in a bio. So everything, it feels so big. It feels so broad. It feels so vague because I'm, I'm trying to capture more in explaining her than what my limited vocabulary will allow. And a part of me wonders is if in John's gospel, as he's trying to introduce Jesus, if that's exactly what he's experiencing. I mean, how in the world are you supposed to introduce the man who has called you, who has challenged you, who has changed you, who has saved you. How are you supposed to introduce God in the flesh? And that's all that John's gospel really is. It's an introduction to Jesus. It's John taking all that he knows about Jesus and saying, okay, this is what you need to know in order to be able to follow him. This is what you need to be able to know so, so that way you can realize, so that way you can have confidence that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the Messiah, he is the Christ, he is the Son of the living God. And by the time that, that John was writing these words, he has spent three years with Jesus. He spent three years listening to, to, to sermons, hearing his stories, enjoying private conversations, experiencing miracles. He he has just spent the last several decades proclaiming the goodness of Jesus, proclaiming the hope that you can have through the resurrection of Jesus. He has spent decades being persecuted for not being quiet about that message. 
He spent decades leading the church. He has so much that he wants to say that he even tells us later in his gospel that if I were to tell you everything that I really want to tell you, there would not be enough space in the entire world to contain the books that it would take for all that information to exist. So how does John begin this gospel? He begins by saying this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. And through these first few sentences, what John is doing is he's setting the foundation that literally the rest of his gospel is going to build upon these first few sentences. But you have to understand, we have to understand this first part, this, this very first part, the first three verses, we have to understand this before we can build with anything else that's to come. And so the first thing that he does is he points us back to the very beginning. You go back to the creation story, you go back to Genesis chapter 1, and the very first words in, in, in your Bible are this, in the beginning, God created. And so John, he uses that exact same language here, in the beginning, was the word. And this is such an important piece of information that we have to understand about Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus. We'll get back into that here, here in just a second. But the second thing that he does is he uses the word word to describe Jesus, to introduce Jesus. We know this is true. Words are so incredibly powerful, aren't they? Everything that is, everything that is anything began with a word. Words have the ability to build up and to unite. Words have the ability to divide and to tear down. Words can, can bring about goodness or they can bring about evil. But the word that John uses here for word is the word logos. And, and the way that John uses this, this word logos here, it is just so, so perfect because he's communicating to a wide audience. He's not just talking to a Jewish audience, and he's not just talking to a Gentile audience because Ju Jesus has not come just for a Jewish audience, and Jesus has not just come for a Gentile audience, but Jesus has come for all. And so John, as he's introducing Jesus, he's introducing him to everyone and as the Jewish listener would hear the word logos, their mind would be drawn back to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created. And, and, and how did God create? God spoke things into, a dis, into existence, you know, light and darkness and all those different things. It was by God's word that everything was created. And so whenever the Jewish listener hears this, their mind goes back to that creation story. Their mind goes back to the spoken word of God that created all things. But whenever the Gentile listener hears this, their mind would have gone to, to, to something, that a, a word that like encompassed all of meaning and all of life and all of purpose. And so whenever you, you, you put those two things together and you see what John is saying with this word logos, he's saying that Jesus encompassed the, the powerful, the creating word of God. And he also encompassed all of life and all of meaning and all purpose. He's telling us that Jesus, he reveals God's mind, that Jesus expresses God's will, that Jesus displays God's perfection, that Jesus, he exposes God's heart. But third, and this kind of ties back into that first point, 
What John is doing here in these first few verses is he's making it crystal clear, a crystal clear case for the deity of Jesus. He's telling us that Jesus was, was, was not a God, but that Jesus is God. That Jesus was present and involved in creation. In fact, nothing that was made was made without him. Today, a lot of people want to believe that Jesus, he was just a philosopher, but but John's saying, no, 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 he was much more than a philosopher. Today, people want to just say, no, Jesus, he was a, a good man who said important things. But John's saying, no, he's much more than just a good man who said important things. He's not just another prophet. John's words, they remind me of what the Apostle Paul said in, in, in Philippians chapter 2. He said that, that Jesus, who being in very nature God... That Jesus' most natural form is that he is God. He did not go to school to study how to become God. He was not hired as an under God and then ultimately promoted to being God. He is God. Everything that can be said about God can be said about Jesus because Jesus is God. So let's look at this again. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. Verse 4. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so as John continues, he, he answers two pivotal questions for us. He answers the question, why is Jesus here, and what's the point of all this? And he answers those questions by talking about life and light. Whenever it comes to this idea of life, recently I was asked to do a podcast with a couple of friends, and, and, and during our conversation they asked me, why is it that whenever everybody sins and whenever everybody messes up, why do we feel so much shame when we sin? Such a good question. My, my response was, was actually, I, I think, pretty simple. My response was because sin is shameful. Sin is shameful, and it has been that way from the very beginning, ever since Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden, whenever Adam and Eve ate from the, the, the forbidden fruit, Immediately, they were embarrassed. Immediately, they tried to hide. Immediately, the community that they had experienced with God, this open community, it had been fractured. Immediately, they felt shame. And the reason that I bring this up is because it appears at times that, that, that there's this notion in our society that more and more and more of us have, have bought into that says that everyone sins, and, and, and my sin, it's really not that bad. I mean, my, my sin, it could be a lot worse. But along with that thinking comes this justification of our sin and a lack of awareness of what sin is and what sin does. And so please let me be as clear as I possibly can here. Sin leads to death. Sin leads to separation from God. Sin leads us to a place in our soul that we are incapable of coming back from on our own. This is why it can be said that a, a Christian is someone who, who was dead in sin, but who has now received life. 
that a Christian is someone who was cut off from God due to sin, but now has been reconciled to God. A Christian is someone who was a spiritual corpse, who now has the life of the Spirit flowing through them. A Christian is someone who was dead to God, who is now alive because in him, because in Jesus was life. And here in in these first few verses, we get this tiny little glimpse of a foreshadowing of of our rescuer who is to come. This one who will come to to make a way when we are incapable of making a way on on our own. The one who will take on our sin. The one who will take on our shame. And through his life will give us life. Changing both our present, condition, our present condition and our future destination. But in addition to being life, we also see that Jesus is light. And all throughout John's gospel, if you study this with us, you're going to notice that John oftentimes would talk about this contrast or even this tension that exists between light and darkness. One thing that has been consistent with God's people all throughout history and I include our history in this, is that God's people so often have have just wanted to be like everyone else. They've always just wanted to blend in with whatever society, whatever culture that they find themselves in. We see this all the way back in the Old Testament with the story of the Israelites. God delivers them out of Egypt and leads them to the promised land. They make it to the promised land, and one of the very first things they begin to do is they begin to look around at all the other nations. And God has just established this new nation, but they look around at all the other nations and they see that all the other nations have a king. And so they decide, ah, we want that too. We want a king. But God was their king. But yet they still wanted another king. And so ultimately God gave them a king. He started with Saul and and Saul started out fine, but then it went downhill really, really bad. And then, you know, it went to David. And, and David started off really, really good, but then he messed up really bad. And then it went to Solomon. And, and Solomon had his own issues as well. And, and because of the sins and, and, and the mistakes of these leaders that they asked for so they could be like everybody else, they found themselves time and time again in a place of, of, of being abused, a place of oppression, a place of slavery. And so much of it was because they just wanted to be like everyone else. Church, when we, the people of God, when we, who who, who claim to be Jesus' followers, when we just want to be like everyone else, to have the same opinions as everybody else, to feel like we need to air our opinions in the way as everybody else, to feel that, that whenever everybody else just turns their back on each other, that that's what we can do as well. We are leading ourselves to a place of oppression, of abuse, of slavery, maybe not physically, but spiritually. We are putting ourselves in a corner because that is not who we have been called to be. For us today, when we are tempted to be like everyone else, we are tempted to buy into this notion that that it's my will and my desire and my version of right and wrong that are most important. But as Jesus' followers, that literally means that, no, that's not the case. But it is Jesus' will and Jesus' desires that are most important. It's Jesus' version of right and wrong that is most important, not ours. And Jesus, he made this clear By entering the darkness, 
as a glorious light. By exposing the darkness and all that comes with it, this darkness that just hovers over this world. And he would overcome this darkness and all that goes along with it. And that's all that this gospel is. It's the good news that that you no longer have to wander around in the darkness and despair of your sin. But you can enjoy the light of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And man, this is so beautiful. If you go back to to the end of verse 5 there, if you have a pen, if you have a physical Bible, underline this. If you're looking at it in your phone, highlight this. This is so important. John tells us in verse 5, he says that the darkness has not overcome it. I want you to know what that means. It means that the darkness threw everything that it had at Jesus. John is obviously writing this on the other side of the resurrection. But the darkness threw everything that it had at Jesus. And it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. It failed to accomplish its purpose. The darkness could not overcome the light that is found in Jesus. And so John, he would continue in verse 9 by saying, that this true light that gives light to everyone has what was coming into the world. This true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. That this is this light that allows us to see clearly. It's entering the darkness where we are lost and we can't find our way. But this light comes in and allows us to see clearly. In Jesus, we are able to see clearly what it is and how it is that we are to live as people who follow Jesus. The way that Jesus responded to others... It's the way that we are to respond to others. The way that Jesus served others is the way that we are to serve others. The way that Jesus loved others is the way that we are to love others. The way that Jesus rebuked and corrected others is the way that we are to correct and rebuke others. He gave it to us clearly. He showed us clearly this light. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who have believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but children born of God. But how did he do this? How did he do this? I mean, how did he give this rebellious, shame-filled, broken group of sinners the opportunity and the right to become children of God? This is one of my favorite verses in the entire gospel right here. Verse 14. Then the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. This word, this logos, this this one who who has the power of the creating word of God, this one who holds the meaning, all all life, and he, he embodies all meaning, and he embodies all purpose. He became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full, full of grace and full of truth. Not 50-50, not 75-25, not 90-10. Full of grace and full of truth. This is how John decided to start his introduction 
of Jesus. And over the course of this series, I hope, I hope that you get to know him in a way that you never have before. I hope that I get to know him in a way that I never have before as I get the honor of being able to study these words one more time. Because John did not write this gospel so that way we could simply learn more facts about Jesus. John wrote this gospel so that we could get to know Jesus, who he is, what he's done, and how we are to appropriately respond to him. He wrote this gospel so that you could believe that Jesus is who Jesus said that he is, that he is the Messiah, he is the Christ, he is the Son of God, the Savior of the entire world. And in this world, it seems to me that if you want to see the light, you have to squint real hard and be real intentional. Because it seems like the darkness is everywhere. We turn on our TVs and whether it's a fictional show that we're watching or a newscast, so often it just feels so dark. We're 18 months into this. People are still getting sick. People are still dying. Hospitals are still overflowing. I have a girl who was in my youth group in Cherryville, Kansas. She's 28 years old. Three weeks ago, her husband of about six months died of COVID. It's just remarkable. It's just unreal. We live in a time where families are being torn apart because they don't view something the same way. To where relationships are being broken because they don't view something the same way. And it's not that this is an issue that is just outside this, the, the, the church. This is an issue that's running rampant inside the church. This notion, this idea that If I don't agree with you, I don't have to listen to you, and I can, like, just exclude you. If you don't claim to be a Jesus follower, you can plug your ears right now, but if you claim to be a Jesus follower, where in the world do we get that from Jesus? just think about all of this that's going on and I mean that doesn't even take into account the jobs that have been lost and the the families, the the, the depression from lockdowns and all those things that that are very clear and apparent I can't imagine all the ways that all of our lives have been impacted but today we're here and in our world, 20 years ago, the, 
the most clear demonstration of darkness and evil that I've ever seen with my own two eyes. Happened 20 years ago. Two weeks ago, 13, you know, the, the servicemen and women were, were, were killed in Afghanistan, and that doesn't even take into account the people that experience that on a daily basis. I mean, our, our world is dark. And maybe you're here today and you'd say, man, it's not just the world, Andy. My mind, it's dark. Maybe you can just feel it. I think Daniel explained it pretty well. This, this, you're just living your life with this like rock on your chest, this weight on your chest that you can't get rid of, your heart. It's dark. But listen, as we go through this gospel, I want you to see that into the darkness steps the glorious light of Jesus Christ. When it seems like that all hope is gone, may we remember that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So may we once again be introduced to Jesus. May we once again be challenged by his words, by his actions, by his life, by his death, and by his resurrection. To see that we cannot be followers of Jesus and just be like everyone else. But our words and our actions, and our lives, they must be different. We must be light for all, forever. Why? Because we are called to be like Jesus. And Jesus is light for all, forever. Will you pray with me this morning? Jesus, I thank you for the hope that we have in you. And God, I do pray for this series moving forward. I pray that your Holy Spirit will just move in us, God, that every day as we wake up, may we be drawn to your word. May it be something that we can't just, you know, just let sit on the nightstand. Can it not be something that's on our to-do list but never gets checked off? May we be drawn to your word. May we have a passion for your word. May we be moved by your word. Jesus, I, I, I pray that, that you will do great things here over the next several weeks. And Jesus, I ask that, that we will come to know you more. Not just more about you, but we'll come to know you in the way that we are transformed by you. That we will be people of hope because you came into our darkness. gave us light to see. So Jesus, we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.